Hello and welcome to the Filmmaking Stuff Podcast, where you'll get insider tactics on how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, LA-based motion picture executive, Jason Brubaker. Hey everybody, today we're back with motion picture industry executive Scott Kirkpatrick. We're going to talk more about how to level up your career into that bigger Hollywood thing. Uh, but at the same time, we're going to dive in a little bit deep into media distribution, the landscape, and how it impacts you as an independent filmmaker. And we'll hopefully offer some tips to help you navigate this ever-changing industry. So without further ado, let's hop into it. I'm going to start by asking Scott some questions about his most recent book release. Well, let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, you, you talk about media distribution. Can you give like maybe a brief overview of what folks can expect when they read the book? Uh, what I like to think of it is it's just this weird world of distribution finally making just concrete nuts and bolts sense. You know, I mean, a lot of these big questions I'm asked all the time from indie filmmakers or, or you know, people who are kind of starting out um, is how do you get a project together? And it answers questions like that. It's, it's, you're not pre-selling a script. You're pre-selling the project. You're, you're taking away... You know, distribution companies need content. They have budgets to spend every year. There's producers with monies in their pockets looking to spend it to acquire and get themselves hooked onto projects. It's about how do you position your project to be one that fits their needs? You know, it's like you just have to make a few tweaks sometimes to a project to make it fit what's needed at, you know, a a studio or, or at an independent production company. Um, but, you know, as a distributor, I can assure you that, you know, I'm, I'm preparing for markets all the time and we need new content all the time. If I don't have a steady pipeline of brand new stuff to sell or to broker deals on, we don't make money. So we need people who can produce and develop and create that stuff. And, um, you know, the writing is literally on the wall. If you get onto Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, you start clicking through and you start seeing what is trending and what isn't. You get a pretty good roadmap of what is out there that actually is needed. And you develop, essentially, you just manufacture on demand. Well, it's interesting you bring up Netflix, and I'm only going to point it out because every other email I get regarding distribution these days has to do with Netflix. How do I get on Netflix, et cetera? One of the big things I hear from filmmakers is they say, well, I was just on Netflix last night and some of the stuff that's on there is terrible and my stuff's way better. What do you say in response to that? Well, that sounds like an opinion, not a fact. But um... <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I usually say that there's some sort of package deal behind the scenes uh, where somebody had some leverage and they were able to get uh, Netflix or any of these premium subscription channels to pick up a bulk deal at a discount. Is that how you see the world? Or am I totally, totally. It, look, it's sometimes easier to talk about this stuff, not about the media business, because uh, I think a lot of your listeners are very passionate about their projects. And so it's hard. It's very difficult to look at something you're passionate about very objectively. So if you think about something yeah. totally not objective, like retail, you know, or uh, grocery shopping, where a grocery store, you know, if you're going to purchase groceries, you always see those deals, buy two for one or, you know, buy three and get, you know, a fourth one for free or whatever. Like you're buying in bulk. When you buy in bulk, you save money. And um, 
digital platforms are the same way. You know, Netflix, Netflix and Hulu and these digital platforms, they spend a ton of money to acquire major studio titles. Those big studio titles bring in big subscribers. That brings in a big rush of new subscribers to the platform. The next question they have is, how do we keep these people engaged? How do we keep a subscriber subscribed? If you subscribe to Netflix because you want to watch some show that they have that's a big, you know, that they are advertising the hell out of, um, you pay your money or you have your free trial, you watch that show, and then it concludes, you have the question of what else is here? And if there's nothing else there that's interesting, you'll cancel your subscription and they lose money. They need to keep you. And so what they do is, yes, they will buy bulk deals. And I've, I've brokered Netflix deals where, you know, they've picked up hundreds of hours of programming from me, some of which is very good high-end stuff. And yes, I've thrown in a few titles that are kind of questionable. Um, and then other situations are, you know, just because a product isn't necessarily directed. Okay, like take Twilight, you know. Uh, Twilight's not directed towards me. Harry Potter is not directed towards me as a consumer. Um, Peppa Pig is not directed towards me as a consumer. Uh, but, you know, so it, it would be wrong of me to say, well, this is terrible. It's junk. It's garbage. When that core audience that really is into that loves it. So it's, you got to kind of look at it from two perspectives, but also as a, as an indie filmmaker who has, let's say a script or a web series they've produced. And they're saying, why does Netflix have that show and they don't have my show? My show's way better. Well, I think that person needs to have a hard look in the mirror and say, who is the person who developed the other show? What are the connections that that person had to a distribution company or to somebody else that that independent doesn't have? And then it starts to present a real case for going back to the drawing board and maybe thinking a little bit more commercially or going a route of more commercial, commercial viable products, kind of like your pine trees versus the pine cone sure. project. Uh, it starts to present a case of maybe that route is a little bit more of a wise, logical, rational way to the future. And then in 10 years, you can then have a direct conversation with somebody at a place like that and say, this is my latest project. Would you like to come on as a partner? Because you've established that credibility and you have those connections. Like the world of distribution, incidentally, is super small. Like it shocks me when I go to a film festival or a TV market. And let's say out of the entire world, all of the channels, all of the studios, there's like 10,000 people making decisions making decisions of what billions of people in the world are going to watch on TV tonight. That's, that's an incredibly small number of people making major decisions. So once you kind of start to filter your way in and get known by those people, your ability to get from point A to point B greatly expands. Well, this, this brings up this whole topic of international pre-sales. You know, there's all these gurus online, and I've certainly I have a lot of educational training uh, products, as, as you well know. And there's a lot of people out there that are like touting the wonders of things that I think are out. They're either outdated, some of the other information out there, or it's not accessible to the independent filmmaker. And I know that you've talked about this in the past that uh, if you're trying to get international pre-sales, it won't necessarily 
let, let's let's put it in sort of a light way. It's it's a big challenge for an independent filmmaker. So why is it a big challenge, and how could we hack the system? What could we do to accelerate our credibility so that we might, you know, get into the room, so to speak? Um, well, I guess the old mindset is I'm going to write a script. And I'm going to have a distributor take that script and bring it to Toronto, Berlin, whatever, and pre-sale international territories. Okay. Well, the person on the other side from Spain, from the Middle East, from Japan, from wherever, what are they getting out of it? They're, they're going to risk money on a script from somebody who might not have major credibility yet. So what can happen is the distributor could put a package together and make it a sellable project. That package would be like guaranteed cast, a director with a track record who's delivered similar content in the past. Plus that distribution company already needs to have had a series of titles that they've been able to pre-sell successfully to showcase that they can deliver. I'm talking about those variables that reduce risk. Um, that happens. That's still a reality. I still do pre-sales here in the States and internationally. Um, and as I said, all these platforms and channels in the world need content. And if they can pre-buy the content, uh, they get a little bit more control as to what it is that they're getting. You know, they have now when they're putting money on the table, they're putting skin in the game, so to speak, um, they get to kind of dictate some things like we want to make sure that we have, if it's a Japanese buyer, maybe they want somebody who's Japanese in the show. Uh, you know, if you, you see this all the time with, um, what was it? The, the Matt Damon Mars movie when he goes to, to Mars and he gets uh, the Martian, um, you know, the, the Chinese came to the rescue and saved the day. Uh, and there was big emphasis in that, you know, that was very, very deliberately placed there, um, and emphasized in the movie version so that, you know, China would pick up the movie because they have quotas and they're not going to pick up everything. Uh, it, those decisions get made specifically to enhance a project's credibility globally. Um, but as far as what you're saying, like it, it, it's what is usually happening, and this goes back to the business-to-business -business conversation, is that distributors don't go acquiring scripts. They don't just go reading a bunch of scripts and, you know, just fishing through the ocean for them. They go to these markets and they have very open, easy conversations with their best, most trusted, loyal buyers, ones they already have a credible relationship with, and they find out what they want. It's that audience question all over again, except here the audience is the buyer. And then they go back and they say, we're trying to put together a project like this. And that project um, might not even exist. There might not be a script for it. It could just be a vague germ of an idea of, you know, I talked to such and such buyer in Germany and, you know, this other place, and they really want an action movie with um, a big star and they'll pay this price tag for it. And they'll then reverse engineer the whole process and go back and hire a writer with the talent to do that stuff pay that writer, you know, $15,000, $25,000, whatever the appropriate percentage is, and based upon the eventual budget, and then um, they'll have a script and get that approved by the buyer, and that begins the pre-buy process. So it's, it's you know, I, 
when I wrote the writing for the Greenlight book, I had so many people come to me and say like, oh, Diablo Cody wrote Juno as her first script. And it's like, they totally discredit the fact that that uh, Diablo Cody was an established writer. She'd written books. She had a successful blog. She had a long history working the writing angle. And therefore, she had a lot of connections to be able to sell that. But when we're talking about pre-selling a project, I've never really seen it happen where somebody writes a script and it's just picked up in the system and, oh, this is such a beautiful script. I'm going to go show it to all my people in this business are super busy. I got stacks of scripts literally right here in front of me right now. And these are already vetted ones that have you know been reviewed by many, many people that I need to read. But, um, you know, sitting down for 90 minutes to read a script by an unknown writer and expected to pre-buy it. Uh, it just doesn't happen. So how do you overcome that? You go back to what I was talking about before, which is you label yourself as a writer who can deliver, and you're never going to sell the scripts that you're presenting. You're selling your skills as a writer to say, when you need a script like this written, I'm the person to call. You do that as a director. Look at all these, you know, uh, what do you call it? Like spec advertisements I've put together, spec projects that I've put together. When you need somebody like this, you know, I can deliver for you. Uh, th that's sort of more the mindset you use. Yeah. So, so, and I'm, I'm really, I'm really asking these questions, Scott, because I, you know, there's, I just want to, I just want to help people find a roadmap, right? Because the, the big barrier to entry, one is the skills, right? You have to have the skills to do what it is that you say you want to do. But then on top of the skills, you have to actually go out and make some stuff happen. So you gave some good examples there. The writer needs to come up with X number of spec scripts. Um, and, and as you point out, you're probably not even going to sell any of those scripts. That's just to prove that you can churn out content. And then you mentioned the director that, hey, um, you know, you probably ought to direct something before you come to the table. And in your case, you're talking about different spec advertisements, right? So where every, every weekend you're busting out a different, you know, advertisement and getting things out there. And I'm, I'm sure short films and different things like that would fall under that category too. You're just saying like, do stuff, get it done so that you can show that you know what you're doing. And I guess, so, so that's the skill building your craft perspective, right? Which is vitally important. You have to do it. You have to know what you're doing. But then the other part that's a real hurdle is once you do that stuff, you, you still got to know the right people to get you from point A to point B. What kinds of things can we do to grease the gears so that we're not waiting 10 years uh, to show somebody our portfolio? Uh, it's, it's a great question. And I think that is, a first off, a lot of the listeners, um, and I put myself in this category incidentally, are if, if you're a writer, most writers are not like super extroverted, let's go to the party and shake hands with everybody type people. I'm not. And I'm in this business. But I'm not like that at all. I think most directors are the same way. Like you, you cannot love sitting in you know your house for a weekend, just absorbing fantastic uh, media and just being moved by it. If you're not a little bit on the introverted side, and so getting over that hurdle of um, meeting people is really tough. And I, I like to kind of approach it in a couple of different ways. Uh, first is it's it's easy for us to stay connected with people that we feel we, we understand. So like writers tend to talk to other writers. Hopeful directors tend to talk to hopeful directors and producers tend, you know, so it's like you're not expanding your network. You're not 
listening to people who work in the same overall industry, but from a completely different side of it. And when you start to sort of force yourself into speaking to people who have interests um, that are totally separate from yours, uh, when you start to have those conversations, you start to see connections that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And you start to have a personal relationship with people who might be able to have a totally different in or a totally different, you know, list of contacts on their side. The other thing I like to have people do, especially, I I, I think this is very important for writers, especially, but directors as well, is um, you have to look at what it is that you're producing and developing. So primarily scripts and projects, you have to look at it from the opposite side. And that is, you know, from an acting standpoint, a performing standpoint, it's actually being able to perform scripts. So I think acting classes are really great. And acting classes are not just for people who want to act. Acting classes teach you incredible skill sets about how to overcome stage fright or, you know, communicating with people. They're fantastic at teaching you how to improvise, which is really what pitching and meetings are. You know, if you go in with an overly rehearsed one-liner, like you just sound dry and boring, but if you can communicate with people, uh, you are able to really um, engage with them. And, you know, if you can, if you can do acting classes, you have to memorize lots and lots of stuff. So if you can memorize people's names and use their name in a sentence during the conversation, remember who they are, that's critical or their kids' names. Uh, and then you revert back to the fact that the more people you meet who have stuff to do in the industry that's totally different than what you do or are interested in, when you meet somebody on the other side, um, you kind of understand what it is that they do. And, and I'll also point out another thing is that as people get deeper into their careers, we, people start off with very clear titles, writer, director, editor, actor, clear things. And as you get deeper into it, you start to meet people more in my sphere, which have more like strategic partnership type titles, uh, SVP of, uh, of, you know, North American distribution. It's like, what do I actually do? Uh, it's a tougher, more detailed question, but the more people you meet and engage with, the more you understand what it is that somebody like myself does or another individual, and you're able to pivot your, your, uh, talking points or how to pitch your script in a way that's going to be received by them. Earlier in this conversation, we talked about um, pitching a project so that the other side is interested in it. It's, it's presenting a case as to why your project is worth somebody else's time. And that's how you have to pitch it all the time. So when you meet somebody from this side of the industry, you might use some different terminology. When you meet somebody from this side, you might, again, switch some terminology and maybe not even emphasize the drama part of it, but but emphasize the commercial terms in it. Right. So so using some of your examples here, like if I were to meet, um, you know, I go to different barbecues, as do you, and you oftentimes meet people uh, that are well known, like an A-list or B-lister or, or whomever. And you have an off chance uh, situation where you're building up rapport, you're having a good conversation, you're having a few laughs, they ask you what you do. And you kind of go into the pitch. If I'm talking to an actor, would you suggest at that point that I start talking about, you know, I really focus on the drama and the really uh, juicy acting parts of the script versus another distributor where I might focus a little bit more on the audience appeal of the script uh, using your con, you know, the context of I'm a screenwriter with a script. Yeah. It's, it's like shifting gears in a car. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, 
the, the way I would explain something like how an app works, for instance, um, to a grandmother versus to a teenager who's likely to use it as opposed to the grandmother who just wants to understand what it is all the kids are talking about. Uh, right. You know, it, it, the terminology I would use is very, very different. You know, if I'm having a conversation with my colleagues, I'm going to be dropping acronyms left and right that would make zero sense to your audience. But, you know, when I'm speaking in a forum like this, it's much more I'm, I'm speaking broad brush strokes. You know, it's our styles of, of communicating change all the time. And absolutely, if you're talking this is not a roadmap, by the way. It's like each actor, actress is totally different in what's going to resonate with them and a script um, or a project. Sometimes actors just come on board because they want to work with the director and it doesn't matter what the script is. Um, other times they just got connected to the book and they're the one leading the project. I mean, like Robert De Niro found Raging Bull as a book and had to convince Scorsese to do it. Uh, so it's like, you know, that communication totally differs, but yeah, talking the emotional points with one person and then totally dropping those and, and shifting gears for somebody else at the same barbecue happens all the time. What do you recommend to increase your odds of, of building these relationships? I, I often talk about AFM. I would say that the American film market's one place to go. You have some other ideas where people should hang out? Uh, in truth, it totally depends on what it is they're trying to achieve. Um, I mean, I, well, let's go back to filmmakers. Like I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I want to make more films. I need to build relationships with funders and distributors. Where do I go? Um, I guess to sort of kickstart that, um, you need to kind of build I think first you kind of need to build a presence, you know, like you sort of need to have a couple of basic tools at your arsenal so that when you are communicating with people and they start to look you up and what you've done, you already have a lot out there. Um, to go to an AFM blindly, uh, that's a really tough place. You can certainly meet people, but that's a tough place to do it. Um, I think uh, it's easier to utilize any number of, of sources that are around today, like LinkedIn or anything else, um, as a platform to build yourself as a filmmaker, to build yourself as a thought leader in whatever field you're trying to do. So if I, I'm just hypothetically throwing this out there. If you want to be known as a director who is on the cutting edge of documentary films that are um, very anti-GMOs, whatever. You have to be seen as a voice in that world and with things like Twitter and LinkedIn where you can use hashtags and everything else to get your name associated in that space. You're kind of branding yourself as um, an expert or as somebody whose voice means something and matters in that um, to that core group. So then if you can, uh, then when you deliver your project or you start to kind of pepper the that group with what you're trying to sell you already have kind of a built-in audience there to reach out to and then because you're trending 
you'll actually find that a lot of people are going to start seeking you out because you'll become top of mind to other people. You can do that in the drama space as well. What's beautiful in today's world is you can brand yourself whatever you want to be, but you've got to be prepared to back it up with um, uh, actual articles or video links or data that showcases that you are doing what it is you say you do and you can deliver when requested. Uh, so it's a long-winded way of saying, you know, there's not some building in Chicago where everyone's going to be and you got to be there on that, this date at this time to get in. You utilize these tools that anyone, whether they're from Lincoln, Nebraska or New York City can use um, to create themselves as a go-to source to, um, uh, uh, to, to be called upon to get something specific delivered. Yeah, so I, I think I can take some of the ingredients you just mentioned and put that into a roadmap. So I'll, I'll use your example of I'm a documentarian. I just don't really believe in GMOs. So I want to be, you know, frankly, the evangelist for why GMOs are bad and, and what we can do as humans to be better. And so I start writing blog articles. I start going on podcasts. I start, you know, sharing different other, you know, thought leaders, articles and, and tweets and that kind of stuff so that I start being known as somebody that's in that space that cares passionately about it. Then maybe on some weekends, I might go and interview the other influencers in that space. And this becomes the kernel of what, what might eventually become my documentary. But because I'm not up to speed yet with my documentary, I'm still building all this credibility for myself. But now I show up at the American film market and I specifically um, am focused on meeting with distributors and producers that also have the same philosophy towards GMOs or, or anti-GMOs. And I just make meetings with those people. And then before the meeting, when they're deciding whether or not they actually want to meet with me, they're probably going to do a Google search on me. Or, or maybe I might even include this in my email to make it easier where I link back to some articles and some short form videos that I've created in that space. And now I have a bit more credibility and uh, frankly, a bigger reason for somebody to carve out time in their big busy schedule to meet with me. Is that in line with, with some of the stuff you're saying? A hundred percent. And to be totally honest to your audience, if it sounds like a lot of work, like maybe they need to rethink going into this business, it's um, it's it's 100% self-marketing. And even if you've produced a fantastic film and you sign it to a distributor, I assure you, you're still going to have to do the legwork with some of the marketing. So it's um, absolutely what you just laid out there. And um, you'll see how early you, it starts with a very simple decision. What core thing do I want to be known for? What do I really want to be? You know, a writer is too vague. What type of writer? What script do you want to write? What do you enjoy writing? A director is too vague. What do you want to direct? And if you say, I want to direct Academy Award winning dramas with A-list celebrities, good for you. Great. But you're not going to do that in your first fucking movie. Like you have to build steps. You have to build a roadmap. You have to build a blueprint to get from point A to point B. And, you know, going in and, and saying, you know, focusing on, on genre titles or producing stuff that the Hollywood system wants when you're early in your career is being a sellout. Um, I, I, I totally beg to differ. It's it's just one of the the first steps you have to, to hit to get from point A to point B. You know, like, 
architecture. Yeah, well, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and I don't mean to interrupt you, Scott, but I, I don't think that I know you mentioned that before. I don't think it's being a sellout at all. All you're trying to do is decide whether or not you want to sell your work as an artist. And if so, you got to kind of produce the stuff that the audience wants. Or if you don't want to do that, that's completely fine. Just make your independent, you know, backyard indie and call it a day. And, and maybe you can be fulfilled, you know, creating art that maybe not everybody wants to buy. But, you know, here at Filmmaking Stuff, like I really want to help uh, other filmmakers that are entrepreneurial minded that get some of the stuff that we're talking about here. So, you know, in my opinion, some of the things you're saying need to be said because you really are kind of sketching out a way to accelerate the credibility factor. But on top of that, you're also mentioning some ways that you can get the attention of people who can make decisions and ultimately shepherd you uh, towards the next level of your career. So I, I think you know everything you're saying, uh, frankly, speaks to me and, and I'm sure a large portion of our listener base. I, I know you, you've personally spent a lot of time here um, with me today, and that's very much appreciated. I know your time is very valuable. Uh, I frankly, I know that you and I could talk all day, so I'd love to have you back on future shows. But between then and now, you've mentioned two books that you put together, and I think that these should be must reads for every independent filmmaker. So I'll let you kind of describe each book and 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 let us know where we can get them, and then then we can wrap it up for the day. Absolutely. So the the newest one is called Introduction to Media Distribution, and it's really just a high level, no nonsense digestible um, understanding of the whole distribution ethos. Uh, you know, it's it's making sense of all of the crazy stuff that actually gets movies and television shows funded, why certain shows get funded versus others, and how one is able to see their project and themselves fit into the overall Hollywood system. And it also goes into things like how to negotiate contracts, um, how delivery systems work. Uh, and then I think what's most important is how projects are sold before they even exist. And that's really, I think, a, a critical way of understanding how the business of media distribution truly operates and, and all that. Um, and that one's been picked up by University of Southern California and several other top film schools, including Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, as a textbook. So um, I take that as a real... Uh, a seal of approval that uh, it's been seen as, as legit. The second book is Writing for the Green Light, How to Get Your Script uh, to Be the One Hollywood Notices. And that one's all about putting together a game plan for um, hopeful writers. You know, it's it's lots of people have written spec scripts and they just don't know what the hell to do with them. They're not given a, a clear bullet point direction of this is how you can create a writing career. And it is not writing once it's not how to write a script where there's lots of books about here's how you write a script and you know people write one script and then they hope they get an agent and their career just takes off it's how do you build that career and in truth anyone who's listening who is interested in let's say directing or producing or even acting um, they can read that and still put together a plan for how they can apply it to their own craft um, so these are really two just books that uh, I, I consistently get emails from people um, just telling me that it sort of shed a lot of light on giving them a game plan, uh, something that not many other resources provide. Awesome. Well, it's so great to have you on here. And for those of you listening, once again, uh, pick up Scott Kirkpatrick's books, Introduction to Media Distribution 
and also writing for The Green Light, How to Make the Script the One Hollywood Notices. Scott, really appreciate you coming on here, and I hope to have you again soon. Uh, for everybody else, take action and make your movie now. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Filmmaking Stuff podcast with Jason Brubaker. If you like our show and want to get more filmmaking info, make sure you check out filmmakingstuff.com and join us every week for new filmmaking tactics. Until next time, take action and make your movie now.